Welcome to the Performance Health Podcast. Today we're going to be talking about principles of force length, specifically looking at capsular space. We're going to reverse engineer this one. We're going to talk about it from the lens of stretch shortening cycle. That if I lose capsular space, or if there's some excessive compression going on in one joint, how does that affect the connective tissue in the joints where I need to leverage a stretch shortening cycle? So I hope this helps in terms of looking at it from a output measure and seeing if that's something that we can have a deeper understanding why space is really important. Also, we have our book coming out, Strength Deficit, Leveraging Eccentric and Concentric Contraction Types. It's going to be a really good book, and this is a seamless transition. We're trying to layer in some stuff that I think will be helpful for understanding the book, so hopefully it's all synced together. That book will be coming out here hopefully late uh, late spring. Pre-orders will be available here soon, and make sure you're checking that out. And if you do get a pre-order, we're going to be giving out the programs I utilize at Army West Point, so make sure you're staying on track of that because you don't want to miss that. As always, make sure you guys check out the modules on the website. Definitely helps with understanding the graphics, the visuals, all those things I think will help in terms of understanding something like this. Hope you guys enjoy this. See you guys next time. With this episode, we're going to continue on our force length discussion. We've been talking about a couple different things, right? One being the parallel elastic component, uh, the idea of variability, the idea that having a certain amount of length gives us more ability to handle really dynamic and ever-changing environments. And I think as we start to break down what we're really doing as practitioners, performance coaches, is this construct of what is actually going to lead to a net improvement, relatively speaking, to not doing anything. And as we start to break down, and obviously we're going to push the thresholds within certain exercises of force, velocity, or work. But the other aspect of, are we making athletes more resilient, yes or no? Are we getting more from our training, yes or no? And I think this simple question goes into this, well, what, how do we get more from our training and how do we get more resilient athletes? Yeah, there's an element of bioenergetics, there's an element of biomotor abilities between force, velocity, and work. There's an element of biomechanics. And biomechanics is really just the study of human movement. And how do we look at that in a construct to get someone moving more efficiently? Right? And this motor learning aspect that we, we will dive into is a huge piece of it. But it comes secondarily to what is the actual force length continuum for that individual athlete? And that determines a large part of how much we're actually going to get from an exercise, as well as how resilient that person may or may not be. So if the connective tissue is restricted, if the contractile tissue is restricted, that's one thing. But the other thing is if the joint doesn't have enough prerequisite space, we're going to be really limited in our ability to move freely, uninhibited, without potential pain, dysfunction, or some sort of compensation, which is going to lead to offset force, offset velocity, diminished work. The worse our biomechanics are, the less resilient we will be, and the less actual we'll get from our training. So thinking about this in the right order sequence, yeah, we, we should be thinking, obviously, we want to gravitate to the things that move the needle to performance of running faster, jumping higher, being more, having a higher capacity. But on the other end, all that is rate limited by our ability to move freely without pain and compensation through a full, rate, full degree of excursion of each one of our joints. 
So going back into what we talked about the last month in terms of parallel elastic component is this idea of the connective tissue that's interchanging with the actual muscular and bone or skeletal system. So as we start to look at what, what is going to be constricted and what is going to create force or propagation of force from that actual contractile tissue to the skeletal system that needs to move is going to be either facilitative or inhibitory to what we're trying to accomplish. But as we will go through here in this concept of tensicridity, looking at essentially this alternating sequence of compression and, and uh, tension is this idea that the joints are kind of working subservient to whatever the contractile tissue and non-contractile tissue around it are doing. So as we start to look at, well, why is it important to create space within a joint? It starts to become more and more of, a, of an issue when we look at people who have impingement or looking at things of compression problems, right? And one more thing we talk about with tensegrity is this, I, this construct of, well, the reason why we can handle such high degrees of forces, right? We're thinking about when we're running. Some estimates are as up to three to four times your body weight every single time you strike the ground, depending on your, on your amplitude or your propulsion. So imagine three to four times your body weight, so an athlete weighing two to 300 pounds if you're working with American football, striking the ground with 1,200 newtons of force, hitting that foot every single time. How do you handle that much load? Right? And I know people can see and envision the idea of what a tendon's elastic strength is, right? And one of the things I want people to understand is elasticity is it's returning to formation, right? So something that can return to its original form is more elastic than it can. So if you think about a rubber band, that's probably the first thing you come to grips with. But relatively speaking, if I was going to apply force to something that's really rigid that can return to its normal form, that would be something that's elastic. So that idea of connective tissue, like leather, or looking at it from the construct of, it's not gonna give a lot, it's not gonna have a lot of give. So the contractile tissue is gonna be the one that's more malleable. So the length of which that contractile tissue can exert force at is gonna be a huge distributing factor of whether I'll be able to move freely and be able to recover from that position. But the capsular space that's connected to it is either gonna become restricted and decreased because of excessive force that we're distributing and having to create more of a compression strategy to handle some of these these forces coming into the body when we're locomoting. So what I want people to kind of grasp here when we're thinking about force length and why we're going to talk about capsular space is, is if we don't have a really good force length relationship we're probably gonna have to create some sort of alternate strategy to handle the forces coming on the body and that leads to problems, right? When we look at someone going through a closing angle restriction, right? So that means that the regressive angle, if we're talking about an FRC, is getting some sort of pinchy sensation. That is classified as impingement. It's probably some sort of either bony overgrowth on both sides of the joint Maybe it's excessive connective tissue being developed in that area. Maybe it's just a closing off the space and loss of fluid. Either way, we start to look at compressive related problems and that comes down to just excessive forces going into that area that we pay for our transgressions over time of what we repeatedly do. Remember, principle of training is specificity. We will be better at or 
respond to what we repeatedly do. So it better be right because if we don't, we're going to get adaptations that we don't want. So as I start to look at compressive issues and losing capsular space, what does that manifest into? If there's a pinchy sensation, if there's pain, you're going to automatically adjust your range of motion to, or your position to diminish force to that joint. So one of the big, most flexor-based joints can typically get impingement. So if you look at, or flexion action and not necessarily flexor-based joints, because if we look at the joints, there's three big ones, right? We have a hinge, which would be knee and elbow. We have a ball and socket, would be shoulder and hip. And then we have a saddle joint, would be ankle and wrist. All of them can flex and extend, but it's usually on the flexion side or the closing angle side that we start to get impingement or some sort of compressive related issue or compensation. And people usually feel it as a a pinchy sensation, maybe even pain. And what that means is they're going to find space from somewhere else. So they're trying to open that angle to create a either offset of that pain or that pinchy sensation. And what do you think that does to force length? We're going to have to get length somewhere else, right? So if you can imagine this, right, an ankle that's impinged, we have a more vertical tibia and we can't distribute forces up the kinetic chain to that knee joint. And then we start to get more compressed knee joint. And then we might start getting some sort of patellofemoral problem. We start to get offset length tension relationship because we don't have a ankle joint that can go into dorsiflexion efficiently. Same thing in a hip joint. If I look at it from the hip joint, I start to get some compressive related issues. We start to see some sort of SI discomfort. We start to see some lumbar impingement. We start to see some issues of herniation and and areas that are compressed that become problematic, right? And, and hopefully you can create this visual in your mind of a very hingy squat or someone that has poor patellofemoral and lumbar I guess biomechanics because of their their ankle and their hip are not really capable of going into flexion the way we need it to. So what do we do? Do we throw the baby out with the bathwater here? We say, oh, wow, okay, we need to stop squatting. Or do we find ways to get more capsular space within these joints that are compressed to help distribute some of that force by getting more range? And it's just simple as, do we have enough capsular space? Is there enough space within that joint for that thing to move freely? And where I really want to go with principles, and sorry, this is a very long-winded approach to what we're going to go through, is let's reverse engineer this. Let's look at, let's look at it from the other end of the spectrum, relatively speaking, a parallel elastic component, is looking at the series elastic component and looking at how do we distribute forces efficiently through the connective tissue to leverage passive energy. Right, so we can look at mechanical energy, looking at the sarcomere contracting and shortening and creating a, a shorter muscle cell that pulls on the connective tissue, that pulls on the joint. Versus on the other end, as we start to eccentrically load, that sarcomere becomes to its end length. And we've talked about this before with something like a Z-disc expanding and then something like Titan that might distribute forces through the end of that sarcomere. So that Z-disc is reaches its length, length tension relationship, and then that Titan is pulled to its biggest stretch position so that muscle cell is not going any longer. Now those forces start to get distributed to the actual connective tissue that's connecting directly to the bone. That connective tissue doesn't have a lot of give. There's a very collagenous and very rigid structure that doesn't want to expand that much. It's highly elastic. 
meaning it's going to return to its form. So we want to use that energy to be able to propagate force. But the issue would be is if we have compressive late related issues on the capsular space, we're going to position our body to not utilize some sort of range in that lack of capsular space to offset our lack of range of motion, our pain, our potential bad biomechanics. So therefore, that passive energy transfer from the muscle cell or contractile tissue getting it to its end length into the connective tissue, which is the series elastic component, going into that, that bone is limited by the joint that's compressed. That I can't utilize that passive energy because I'm shifting tension away from that joint that can't flex or extend way we want it to without pain compensation or some sort of aberrant motion. So that series elastic component, this passive energy that we can really lean in on is going to be diminished. And where you see this is really poor vector control, right? So we have three big vectors. We have horizontal, vertical, and rotational, right? I can go forward and back. I can go up and down and I can go in some sort of rotational type of movement, right? And whether combination of the three, right? So you can kind of go all three, right? And there's not just one black or white thing. It's not like your, vec your vertical, horizontal, or rotational in all capacity. But if we look at it from the context of, let's say that I want to do a vertical jump and I want to go have as much vertical displacement as I possibly can. What we typically see with people with compressed joints is we start to utilize horizontal strategy. <coughs> Pardon me. So we start to look at a compensation in the horizontal vector, right? We start to see butt goes back. We start to see knees go back. We start to see a ankle that's not purely dorsiflex. We start to see knees that are not flexing as much as they should. And we see a hip position that goes retro or behind us. And where do you think that that connective tissue, that series elastic component is trying to distribute force? It's trying to break or limit the amount of horizontal forces that we're going through. And if we're trying to utilize that stretch shortening cycle in the vertical vector, and we're fighting or resisting this motion from our lack of space in our joints, forcing us to go on the more horizontal plane, where do you think our vertical jump's gonna go? Right, I'm trying to create a stretch reflex in the, in the connective tissue that connects my, my gastroc and my calcaneus, aka my soleus and my Achilles tendon. I'm trying to create a stretch reflex in the quadriceps, so that that superior patella tendon. And I'm trying to utilize that energy from these big, powerful vertical vector movers, the gastroc and the quadricep, but I'm now fighting myself because, man, I don't have a lot of dorsiflexion, so my butt goes back, so now I have a lot of stretch shortening cycle or a lot of stretch going on potentially in that SI joint and then the connective tissues that connect my my pelvis to my lumbar. I might look at a potential stretch reflex going on in my glute, my hamstrings. Uh, I might look at a, maybe not much of a stretch reflex because I don't have a lot of dorsiflexion going on at the ankle. So that displacement that I'm trying to create, albeit might be vertical, it's probably going horizontal. And it's when you see people jump forward and they have this massive snap forward of their hips because they're trying to create some sort of momentum and force. 
that's not really good strategy. If I have a clear delineated vector I'm trying to do, if I'm trying to get someone three extra inches on their vertical jump and they have lack of capsular space between their ankle and their knee, what do you think is going to happen if I try to utilize a vertical vector orientation when they don't have that space? They're not going to be able to get it. So I can do all the squats, I can do all the plyos, I can do all the work that I really want to do to help improve that person's actual ability to jump higher, but it all is nullified if I don't simply have enough space between the ankle, knee, and hip joint to be able to move freely in all vectors to get me as much displacement vertically. So that series elastic component, the rate limiting step, really is going to come down to, can I maintain capsular space? And actually, when we look at capsular space, is this idea of this almost cushiony type effect that creates a natural space between the joints that allows for either a for uh, either a tension or a compression based strategy to go from one joint to the next. Like I don't need every joint to be compressed. Obviously, I don't want that because I want sometimes that joint to move freely, and when it's compressed, it starts to become restricted. Hence, impingement. So if I have a, a overly compressed joint because I just have either bunny overgrowth or just a loss of space in general, I'm limiting the ability for that joint to be able to move freely and that becomes now a joint that has to be compensated for up the kinetic chain. So one of the lines that we talked about in the module is capsular space is about maintaining the area between the bones to allow distribution of fluids to transfer that uninhibitedly. This uninhibited fluid dissipates forces from one side to the next or one joint to the next. So one of the things that we talked about with levers is the idea that we understand that in two dimensions and it's a beautifully eloquent thing between first, second, and third class levers, but that's not really how the body works. Body works in all three planes of motion. This two-dimensional representation of what's going on in, the, in a joint is really not an accurate depiction. Again, we learn through reductionism and this helps in terms of understanding forces and how we how we really propagate forces up and down, but the reality is it's not really that true. Because the issue being is for a lever to exist, we need to have the fulcrum in contact with the lever. And if we want to maintain space, technically that's not true. That we have a lot of floating bodies in between, between cells, ground substance, and just general fluid between our joints to help that move either freely or allow it to compress. Right, and what that does is pushes fluid from one side to the next or from one joint to the next, right? So if I compress one joint, that means the other joint that's up the kinetic chain needs to have a lot of a lot of space maintained between it to move freely. And this is the concept in tensegrinity of compressional compressional discontinuity. That is one joint compresses, the other joint needs to stay open to allow us to move freely to articulate in that vector that we're utilizing this distributing of force strategy between our bones and joints to help us move without some sort of compensatory action in the plane that I want to do. So thinking about it from an ankle joint, if I want that ankle joint to move freely, I look at that towel curl joint, that part where the saddle sits in onto the actual calcaneus, and I look at that talus as this needs to drop to allow for that tibia to move freely, and I look at that freedom of motion going forward into the ankle, allows for that force to go up and now I can create stability in the knee and utilize a compression strategy there, potentially, if I wanna go vertically. So going back to our vertical jump, 
That space that I maintain in my ankle allows for more dorsiflexion or that tibia to move forward, relatively speaking, to that calcaneus or that talus or that talus bone. And now that force goes up. I'll utilize a compression strategy between my tibia and my femur, so that's going to close off, flexing that knee, and that's going to become closer in contact together. Now the stretch shortening cycle occurs on that quadricep, and I can go up. But it's the loss of space in that area that creates this problem that doesn't allow me to move the way I want to do, and I can't get as much out of the stretch shortening cycle. So when we're thinking about really what we're trying to do, is trying to maintain space to do what we want. And one of the things we're thinking about is if we start to specifically load joints that are compressed, that don't have enough space, we create an adaptation that we don't want. Again, we've become better at what we repeatedly do, so better be the right construct and pretense. The rates of stretch and the intensity of which we stretch will lead to this outcome that creates this almost reinforced compression strategy in the wrong joints that leads to downstream problems that we don't want. So again, coming back to that example, hey, I want to train this guy for the combine. He has compressive strategies or closing angle problem in his ankle, his hip, maybe even his lumbar, maybe even his knee, maybe even his shoulder. And all of a sudden, I start to load him up with traditional strength and conditioning movements, squats, cleans, bench. And he starts to become more reinforced with his lack of range in these positions to move freely and uninhibited. And the end result is if he does get a higher vertical jump, it's because we improved his biomotor ability. We just got him stronger in these these maybe compensatory patterns that he's developed, which is fine if that's your only goal. But the other attitude, other approach would be, can we create more space in these joints that need to be have more degrees of freedom to allow myself to move and stay in control of those vectors? See it all the time with things like changing direction. And we see it manifest into, if I'm gonna do 40 programmed agilities and that person doesn't have enough space within his ankle, knee, hip, or a really shoulder joint to get down and make a hard turn and more degrees of freedom create more compensation, right? So if I ask the guy to touch a line with the hand or do a 90 degree plus change of direction, that lack of space between that ankle will manifest up, right? You see this all the time. A vertical shin on a 510.5 probably means a really, really hinged over a lot of lumbar lumbar flexion, I'm sorry, extension. We see this low back compensation because we don't have the right space in that ankle, maybe even that knee or maybe even that hip to get down there comfortably. Probably don't have enough abduction. Adduction, we probably don't have enough rotation. Probably don't have enough in general and pretty much all of our joints. But the reality is what that leads to is something's going to give. I'm going to get space somewhere and it's going to come from the lumbar. Maybe we don't have enough space in that ankle joint and we can't invert, so we're doing these hunt hard turns that's locked in eversion. That tibia needs to rotate in more. That knee needs to go more into the frontal plane, so it starts to adduct or go in the valgus. That torso goes away. You put a lot of stress on that potential meniscus or even that ACL. 
and we start to see downstream effects. We start to see patellofemoral issues. We start to see hip impingement issues. We start to see these problems start to manifest out all because they just didn't have enough space and maybe a couple joints. So when we're thinking about what should I do, start off with, hey, how do I create more space in these joints? How do I create more of an openness in that closing angle side so when I can build in really the movement patterns that I want to have? And you could go about this a variety of ways, but you really want to look at it of let's build flexibility or passive range of motion first. Let's build in some mobility or active range of motion. And then let's focus on that all the time. That should be the prerequisite thing. You know, one of the things we got from Exos or even FRC, you know, this idea that we should have this fractal representation from our, our joints and then our movement patterns, right? So FRC, we'll talk about have a, have a joint before you start to integrate that in a movement pattern. I think that's pretty sound and fundamental logic, right? Like if I don't have flexion of the knee, I don't want to start to do exercises that require flexion of the knee. Hopefully that's intuitive, right? If I don't have adequate dorsiflexion, I need to figure out how do I get that before I start to load it externally. And then one of the things Exos will talk about in the movement prep, it should look, feel, and smell like we're going to do for the drills of that even day. So if I don't have something that is prerequisite going into that movement pattern from a motor learning perspective, then I'm probably not going to be as good if I did, didn't do it. So when I look at that from a construct of, okay, well, the joint needs to be there. And then the motor pattern, maybe it's in a, a corrective E type environment. Maybe it's in a in a four by four. We put them in a prone supine or tall kneeling, half kneeling environment where they have less balance and less proprioceptive input, but they can really th- see what their articulation of the joint is. To give some sort of diagnostic, do I do or not have that joint or the space in that joint to do these movement patterns? And if I don't, and I start to prematurely load, whether it's really heavy, really fast, or really long, we start to create a double-down effect of more compensation and more compression and less ability to leverage this concept of tensegrity and compressional discontinuity, and then all of a sudden we're not getting as much utilization of our stretch shortening cycle. Maybe we see it at a force plate. We're spending more time on the plate and less time in the air because we're doing horizontal instead of vertical. Maybe we see people who are trying to do a broad jump or a horizontal or a horizontal long jump, and they they can't really load their hips because they're compressed. These things become very or decelerate, right? I guess the other big one, right? I haven't talked about deceleration, right? The ability to stop because of that. And what are people's strategy? Do they do they go into a positive shin angle? And do they reach out or a negative shin angle and they reach out and they start to decelerate with the with bone on bone on bone and you start to see some sort of like jarring effect going up to their back and they start to get some sort of uh, some sort of issues going at their back like sciatica or some sort of compressive related strategy going on there. You know, all these things could be probably mitigated if we just simply get better joints and create more space and, and allow for more fluid to transfer very seamlessly from one end to the other or one from one joint to the other. Fluid's got to move. And if there's no place to move, it starts to create movement elsewhere. And the question will be, is that what we want or not want? So hopefully this is a good start to uh, to the conversation about what we really want to look at from capsular space and looking at it from, well, if we don't have capsular space, we're going to have offset dis- compressional discontinuity. And that's going to lead to some downstream effects of 
probably not getting what we want from the stretch shortening cycle. So I hope all that makes sense. I hope that helps. Um, I, I really, really think this is going to be a, a fun month uh, to really dive into some movement stuff and mechanic stuff. At the end of this, we got Jordan Alcantara, the head strength conditioning coach for uh, Loyola Marymount, and he's going to talk about how he leverages plyos. And you know, I, I think it's going to be a great conversation. I'm really fired up to have him on. So hopefully, all this stuff is building into um, hopefully a more a more robust and deeper understanding on how the body moves and what we should be thinking about on a daily basis. Appreciate you guys. And uh, as always, see you guys next time.